Good evening, everybody. Oh, I'm like way off center. I was coming over here. The middle is more like right here. How's everybody doing? How's a weak response? Come on. How's everybody? The table is one of my favorite places to come talk because you guys are so nice. Um, there's other places to teach that aren't so nice and friendly. So thanks for, thanks for letting me come talk with you guys. My name is Jonah. I'm the missions pastor here at Vista. Um, have been on staff for a couple of years and just love what God's doing in our church. Love what God's doing specifically among our young adults. Um, you guys are, are amazing. Like, it, I, I don't know, it just blows me away all the time. Like, the, the movement that God is, is having in our community, I think, through the group of folks in this room, is pretty wild. It's pretty impressive, and it's just something I love seeing our church be a part of. So, claps to you guys. Y'all are awesome. Um, here at Vista, I get to do a number of fun things, um, and, I, and I don't take for granted that I have a really unique job. Um, don't take that for granted at all. But this time of year is admittedly an anxious one for me. Like, if I can just be honest, like this season um, of the year annually, like the fall, like fall weather comes on, and I start to get a little anxious. And largely that's due to a number of deliverables um, that come with my job in this season. Um, Believe it or not, people that work at churches have deliverables for their job as well. It's not just, just praying all day long that we do up here. Um, the fourth quarter of the year has various events and projects and annual assessments and all sorts of other things that come with what I do. And while I love the fall weather, the chilly days that come also come with a voice in the back of my head saying, time to get some stuff done because the end of the year is coming. It's time to get some stuff done. And work in general is something for me that I greatly enjoy. Like I really love working hard. And and not everybody's like that. That's not how everybody's motivated, but I love working hard. Um, I am blessed, like I said, to have an incredible and unique job, and I don't take it for granted. And I've always enjoyed working hard and accomplishing work projects and tasks and goals. Um, it It provides to me, working hard provides me a great sense of purpose and belonging. Of somewhere I belong when I when I can work hard when I when I can accomplish tasks when I can get stuff done I'm like I belong somewhere like I fit somewhere that that's just my feeling uh, I might be alone I don't know but in addition to working at Vista I have the privilege of moonlighting for a real estate investment company which has been an interesting kind of 18 months or so but it's really enjoyable getting to take old and nasty houses and make them new it's something I, I really enjoy doing practical chip gains um, not really but really enjoy doing that. Um, and so along with that comes with more goals, more things to accomplish, more things that if I can get this done, then I feel really good about myself. I feel like I have a purpose. I feel like I have a place to belong. And so if you hadn't guessed it, if you're an Enneagram person, I'm an Enneagram 3. An Enneagram 3, the achiever. And I have a knack for hard work and delivering results, and for the past several years, a great sense of anxiety has come into my life in seasons like this one. Um, I have a pain that I get in my neck right here when I get stressed out. I just feel it in my neck throbs right here. And I'm a silent sufferer when I'm stressed out, so I'm not going to complain. I'm a pretty chill person. I'm not going to say I'm so stressed out, I'm so busy, I've got so much going on. I'm a silent sufferer, and I'm just going to feel this pain right here in my neck. And it's a sign for me that I'm a bit tensed and, and I'm a bit worked up. And for a couple of years, I've recognized that this pain starts around, around this time of the year, right here in my neck. It's in the fall. It's been like three or four years that I know it's coming and I feel it. It's like, it's that time of the year again. There comes that pain in my neck. 
And it's a pretty wild thing that my job, which is not physically intensive at all, like I sit at a desk at a computer and stare at a computer screen for like six hours, seven hours a day at least, um, my job that's not physically intensive has physiological effects on my body. Like that's pretty... Oh, yes, God. That's pretty wild. It's pretty wild that my job that's not physically intensive has physical effects on my body. And while everyone in the room is not an Enneagram 3, we all have our own numbers, we all have our own personalities, that sort of thing, um, we're not all preconditioned um, to strive for accomplishment like I am, I would make the bet, I would bet, that among the folks that are in this room, that what you do for work plays a significant role in your life. What you do for work plays a significant and meaningful role in your life. Some of us, maybe not. Some of us, maybe that's not the case. We're just like, it's a job, I do a job, I do my thing, whatever. For the most part, I would argue that most of us, work is a meaningful thing in our lives. And that would be a hedged bet. I'd be hedging my bet with some data. Because the data would argue that among the people in this room, work does play an incredible and important role in your social and emotional health. That's the data. It's point in fact. It's not arguable. In fact, it's being argued today that workism is the religion of millennials. Workism is the religion of millennials. So to back up a bit, on a macro scale, institutionalized religion, like church, but all faiths, all faiths that are institutionalized in North America have all but plateaued and are declining. That's probably not news to anybody, but here in North America, traditional religious belief is declining. Less people are participating in the life of institutionalized religion than ever before. Mark Chavez, he's a sociologist at Duke University, he's proposed that the continued downward spiral of traditional religious belief in our country will be directly correlated with the fact that fewer people are immersed in traditional religious settings, and so they're raising kids who will be completely disengage from institutionalized religion. It's just how things happen. It's just the reality. It's not an opinion, it's the data. And so what this implies is that we're gonna raise, our generation will raise kids, for the most part, who are disengaged from church. And while traditional religious belief and engagement is declining, we would all probably agree that we are preconditioned to worship something, right? There's something in the human mind, there's something innately within us that brings us to worship something. Sociologists have actually argued that as far back as 100,000 years ago, they can see in in the artifacts and the data available that humans 100,000 years ago were worshiping something. Worship is part of the human brain and has been for all of history, that we are designed to worship something. We appear preconditioned as a species of humans to worship something. And so this brings me back to workism. So many have argued that for North American millennials and older Generation Z, which is the generation right underneath millennials, workism has become our religion. Now to define workism, it's said that workism is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose in the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. 
Y'all, American millennials, we are collectively working more hours and taking fewer vacation days, PTO, whatever it is, than any generation previous to us. That is the data. We are working more and taking less time off than any generation before. Many companies now are offering unlimited PTO, unlimited paid time off. Do you know why? Because they're looking at the data and they know that you won't use it anyways. So they can offer the perk of unlimited time off. This is just a fact, this is just data. So hustle culture has developed as a full-fledged industry. Hustle, get out there and hustle, get out there and prove yourself. We're encouraged to work harder than ever before, for fewer hours than ever before, to achieve some projected higher quality of life. And the argument that's been made in regard to this whole idea is is two important factors that are contributing to this kind of behind the scenes for young adults. Two important factors, again, data, not opinion. The first is student debt. The second is social media. So student debt is something that we all understand, and I'm not interested in politicizing that conversation, not today, not the place and time, don't care, not interested. It is a simple fact that millennials generally have an incredibly high student loan bill. Fact, data. And that we make less money in comparison to our parents when adjusted for inflation. Fact. So what does that mean? There's a drive deep beneath the surface of our generation, a feeling of we have to produce more because we got more to pay back. So we have to hustle harder. In addition to student debt, we're all swimming in the digital waters of social medias, which are curated images of a projected good life with, which often involves high degrees of consumerism, freedom, and happiness. Still popping a little bit. Sorry. Consciously or not, we have been informed and formed to orient our lives around fake projections of reality that we see on social media. This isn't news for most of us. And for just the right amount of hustle, just the right amount of work hard, you can have that Instagram life. You can have that life. If you hustle, if you work hard, if you get paid, you can have that Instagram life, right? Like that's the, the lesson that we've been taught. Hustle, work hard, and you'll make that Instagram life for yourself. In a 2019 article in The Atlantic, a writer named Derek Thompson argues, a culture that funnels its dreams of self-actualization into salaried jobs is setting itself up for collective anxiety, sounds familiar, mass disappointment, sounds familiar, and inevitable burnout. Three adjectives there that describe millennials pretty well. In the past century, the American conception of work has shifted from jobs to careers to callings, from necessity to status to meaning. All this to say that young adults in our country, we tend to seek our meaning and purpose in work. We're worshiping work. We're worshiping work. I'm worshiping work. And there's a damning downside about this. And that is, as Thompson writes, to be a workist is to worship a God 
with firing power. To be a workist is to worship a God with firing power. Many of us have made the false choice of basing, basing our purpose and our meaning in our work, which is fleeting because any job, regardless of how specialized or unique you may be, any job can be gone. There's nothing about any one of our employment which is guaranteed, and I don't care how hard you hustle. None of us are exempt from injury, illness, termination, or just simply not being able to do the job anymore. Reality. Reality. We don't want to deal with that. That's the reality. Additionally, our jobs were never intended to bear the weight of faith. They weren't intended to bear the weight of our faith and belief, our meaning and our purpose. They were never intended to provide us with purpose and meaning. And work is good and important. I told you, I love working hard. I love hard work. And I believe in the power of work to bring transformation to the world. But we've collectively put way too much emphasis on work and its role in our lives. Should I switch? Yeah, let's do that. Check. Is this okay? Cool. Y'all tracking? Sorry for preaching at y'all. That's just, it's a thing. But I'm looking at myself too. Like I'm looking right in the mirror as I say these things and explore these things. It's, it's me. It's, it's my own life. We've collectively put way too much emphasis on the ability of a job to bring us meaning, purpose, and belonging. We but also we as in our generation, people that we live and work alongside. But we're different, if you're here at least, because we claim to be followers of the way of Jesus. And so as followers of the way of Jesus in a world in which we're swimming in, in workism, what are we to do? How are we supposed to live in a way that looks more like the kingdom than the empire? I think that, that, that Paul, in his letter to the Christians in Rome, he offered a helpful guidance on how we ought to live today in light of the situation that we find ourselves in. So we'll be in the book of Romans. So it's believed that, that Paul's letter to the Roman Christians was written in a time of great toleration in Rome. That meaning that the Emperor Nero, he'd just taken the throne, and to this point, he'd exhibited great peace and toleration toward both Jews and Christians. He was all right with them. He didn't love them. He was all right with them. He's like, we don't have to kill these folks. They're okay. And uh, New Testament scholar Ben Witherington, he writes that Paul could, in good faith, exhort his audience, the Roman church, to pay their taxes and do their civic duties and live at peace with their neighbors because there was a great widespread hope, and not only in Rome, but a widespread hope that Nero would keep the peace. So the book of Romans is coming at a peaceful time in the empire. And Paul's ambition in writing this letter to the earliest Christians in Rome, he has two purposes. The first is to clearly, theologically express the gospel of Christ to the Jewish Christians living in Rome. First purpose, clearly express the gospel. Second purpose, encourage the Roman Christians to live at peace as citizens of the empire, but also remember that their lives were never in they were never intended to look like the Romans. Their lives were not. They were supposed to look distinctly and differently from their non-Christian neighbors. Tracking? Cool. Two purposes. Theology. How you live your life. So the first 11 chapters of Romans are a clear explanation of the gospel from Paul's perspective. From start to finish, it's straight-up theology. 
And the final five chapters are instructions on how to live your life as a people that are following the way of Jesus in the empire. And so Paul opens this section of the text, the last, the last section that we'll look at, in Romans 12, starting in verse 1. This is right at the transition. So first 11 chapters, theology, starting in chapter 12, we switch to how to, how to live your life. Romans chapter 12, Paul says this. Therefore, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of all these things we just talked about, God's mercy expressed to you, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. If you're a church kid, you probably heard that one before. In the message version of Scripture, Eugene Peterson interprets Scripture, and he he writes the message, um, another way of understanding this passage. He says this, So here's what I want you to do with God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. And don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without ever thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God, and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. And unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you developed, well-formed maturity in you. So again, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul is preaching theology, and now he turns his attention to what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in light of what we've heard of the gospel. And he says, because of what Jesus has done for you, I want you to view your entire life as a living sacrifice, an offering to God. Paul says, God doesn't want your worship or your prayer meetings or or all of these things. God's invitation to you, Christian, that finds yourself in the midst of a culture like Rome, see your whole life as an opportunity to bring notice to Jesus. And though the world around you is worshiping sex and money and status and false gods and all sorts of other things, my challenge to you, from Paul to the Roman Christian, is to be renewed by God's working in you. And so from Paul, here's the message for us. We are the Roman Christians. We are the Roman Christians. Our world, our culture that we find ourselves in is much closer to that of ancient Rome than it is the kingdom of God. Simple reality. We're making idols out of everything. Everything we can make idols of, we're making idols out of it. We're worshiping sex and money and work, and we put our hope in political figures and our trust in the dollar bill. Amen? Our temptations are the exact same as the Roman Christians. The exact same. They don't look any different. We're just a little bit more digital than them. That's it. Everything else, very similar. And so the invitation of Jesus to us is let me make you new. Let me transform the way that you see the world. Jesus says, let's do something way, way more interesting than idol worship. Let's transform the freaking world. That's what Jesus invites us to do. But how are we supposed to live 
with a renewed and transformed mind in the midst of the craziness we find ourselves in, Paul. That's a great idea, but how are we supposed to do that? And his suggestions to the Roman Christians and to us is simple. Verse 3. Romans 12, verse 3, For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So how do we do this? Paul says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. You're not that big of a deal. I'm not that big of a deal. He explains, your purpose can't be defined that anything that you could ever do or be, or discover on your own. Your purpose is never defined by something you could do, or be, or discover on your own. You can't make meaning out of life on your own. We can't make meaning of life on our own. We, we can't go to college to discover our, our meaning, or hustle to discover our meaning or purpose, or work to discover our meaning or purpose. We could never discover our purpose or meaning in anything we can do or be on our own. The only way that we can understand our purpose and meaning is in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's what Paul says. Our purpose, our meaning, we can't discover it. There's nothing, there's nothing we can do. We can't work hard enough to find and discover our purpose. But our temptation is to seek to discover purpose through work or hustle or marriage or sex or money or all sorts of things. We're a purpose-seeking people. We're, we're inclined to be religious and seek our purpose. We want to make meaning of life, and so we go to work trying to do that. Or if we feel like we aren't living into a certain purpose, then we fill that purpose void with something else. Yeah? For me, I really want to be a dad. I really, really want to be a dad. And that has not been in the cards. I've gotten to be a dad to lots of foster kiddos who've come through our home, which is great. But I haven't gotten to be a dad to a permanent human that permanently belongs to me. Hadn't been able to. That hasn't been the cards. And I'm hopeful that God has permanent small humans in the future for us. I'm very hopeful for that. Very, very hopeful. But there's a felt purpose gap in my life right now. Because I feel like my purpose is to be a dad. I want to be a dad. That's my purpose. I want to discover my purpose and be a dad. And, and take care of kids permanently. But, but that's not happening. And so my temptation is to fill that purpose gap with work. Where I think I can find a sense of belonging and meaning and purpose. I pour myself into accomplishment, into hustle, and to look for work as something that can make me feel purposeful because I'm not able to feel that by, by being a parent. And so re the reality is there's nothing that I could bring to the table to make me feel purposeful. Because my purpose is not something that can be discovered. That's not something that can be found. The reality is my, my purpose won't even be found in being a dad. That's just how I feel that I'll find my purpose. But it's not there. My purpose is an identity which has been assigned to me as a follower of the way of Jesus. Which is an incredible gift. An incredible gift. I don't have to spend my life finding my purpose. I don't have to go on some metaphysical walkabout to figure out who I am. Because Jesus says who I am. Jesus tells me who I am. My purpose has been defined. And my purpose is not something that is discovered. It's assigned. And what is that purpose? Big reveal. What is that purpose? It's to know Jesus and make him known. That's my purpose. To know Jesus 
and make him known. The next section of the text in Romans 12, 4 through 8, Paul writes this to the Roman Christians and to us. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance to your faith. And if it's serving, then serve. And if it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul says that in Jesus, we have a purpose. In Jesus, we have meaning. In Jesus, we belong. And we're all different, all different skills and passions and giftedness. And in Jesus, these skills and passions and giftedness are put to a purpose of knowing Jesus and making him known. And so our gift is that we don't chase our purpose. We don't have to find it. Our gift also comes with a burden, though. And that is that we have to live into our purpose through our giftedness. And so we don't have to sell ourselves to the God of work or the God of money or the God of accomplishment or God of whatever else we're tempted to sell our souls to, to find our meaning and purpose. Because Jesus is doing something much more interesting, much more important, and much more exciting than just scrambling around like ants trying to figure out what is our purpose and meaning in life? What are we supposed to do with our lives? Jesus is transforming the empire into his kingdom and he's doing it using our gifts, our passions, our talents, our giftedness. And this is our purpose, to know Jesus and make him known. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? How do we sign up? How do we live into our assigned purpose as followers of Jesus? Two thoughts on this. First is that we live in community affirming the giftedness and callings of our brothers and sisters. We live in community and we affirm the giftedness and callings of those that live alongside of us. And without community, how could we ever know our giftedness? We should be making it up as well. I'm good at this. How would you know? No one's ever told you that. But in community, we get to affirm the giftedness of others around us. How could we ever be held accountable when we're chasing some purpose or meaning that isn't Jesus without community? Impossible. There's no accountability without community. It's in community that we work out, we test out, and we affirm one another's giftedness to transform the world alongside Jesus. It happens in community. And so for me, it's, it's in community that I've learned that, that Aaron Flieger has an incredible gift of gentleness. It's in community that I've learned that. It's in community that I've learned that Katie Ade has a wild gift of for hospitality. It's in community that I've learned that Joey Menini has the most attuned gift of listening and empathy that I've ever encountered. And I have a bunch of other buddies in my small group, and I would affirm them all, but I don't have time. But it's in community that I've discovered all of these things about these people because I've committed to living life alongside them for years. And I've been able to see those gifts lived out, to affirm them and have them affirm me. I've seen their gifts be used as tools for God to transform the world for kingdom purposes. And that's happened through a commitment to community. 
And so we have to live in community passionately seeking to remind and be reminded to find our purpose and our meaning in Jesus alone and serving his kingdom. We have to live in community, first thought. Second thought is we have to seek opportunities to deploy our giftedness for the kingdom in a way that brings notice to Jesus. We take what we've been given by God to live out our purpose of knowing Jesus and making him known. And we don't sit idly by just twiddling our thumbs, but we recognize the opportunity that our lives are to change the world alongside Jesus. It's hard to do that when we're wasting our time on social media or when we're committed to hustle culture or when we're medicating ourselves with something like video games. Let's be real. And so our jobs, our lives are not meant to find a purpose. And we're not meant to hustle until we feel like we belong or that we've made it in the world. Our jobs become vehicles for knowing Jesus and making him known. To give witness to Jesus and how we conduct ourselves and treat others and engage with the world around us. And instead of selling our souls to the corporate gods for the pursuit of money, we invest our time and energy and talents into things that actually matter to the kingdom. We entrust the gifts that God has given us back to the kingdom by investing in people, meeting needs, and sharing the story of Jesus. That's how we invest what God's given us back into the kingdom. And so how are you seeking opportunities to deploy your giftedness for the kingdom? How are you using what Jesus has given you to transform the world alongside him? Some of you guys are really great with kids. You're really, really talented when it comes to small children. Are you using that giftedness for the kingdom? Some of y'all are great communicators. You're just really good and talented at communicating to people. Are you using that to serve the kingdom? Some of you are super organized and administrative. Are you using that to serve the kingdom? There's opportunities for you to do all of those things within our church and within our community. How are you using your gifts to transform the kingdom or transform the world toward the kingdom alongside Jesus. I'll finish with this. <clears throat> There's this tiny and seemingly insignificant story in the book of 2 Kings that for whatever reason has always struck me weird. Like I've just always hung on to it. I don't know why. It's a tiny little story. And this section of 2 Kings is about the ministry of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And Elijah in, in this book, he performs many miracles that God enabled him to do, um, to perform as he gives witness to God's faithfulness to Israel. And so that's kind of the setting of where we find ourselves. So 2 Kings, it's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to like receive this text and just lean into the text. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So one day the wife of a man from the guild of prophets called out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. You well know what a good man he was, and he was devoted to God. Now the man to whom he was in debt is on his way to collect by taking my two children as slaves. And Elisha said, I wonder how I can be of help. How can I help you? Tell me, what, what do you have in your house? Nothing, she said. I don't have anything. Well, I have a little bit of oil. I have some oil. Here's what you do, said Elisha. Go up and down the street and borrow jugs and bowls and vases and basins and everything else you can find. Borrow all those things from your neighbors. 
And not just a few, everything that you can get. And then come home and lock the door behind you, just you and your sons. And pour the oil into each container. And when it's full, set it aside. And so she did what he said. She locked the door behind her and her sons. And as they brought the containers to her, she filled them. And when all the jugs and bowls and vases and basins were full, she said to one of her sons, Another jug, please. The oil's still coming. I need another one. He said, Mom, that's it. There are no more jugs in this entire town. We have every single one. And then the oil stopped. And then she went and she told the story to the man of God, to Elisha. And he said, Go sell the oil and make good on your debts. Live, both you and your sons, on what's left. If you close your eyes and just do some imagining with me, if that's okay. If you're not about that, you don't have to. But if you just imagine. If you just envision yourself standing in front of Jesus. If, if you just admit you've been searching for purpose and meaning, but you're finally ready to serve his kingdom. You're finally ready. And, and you want to sign up to transform the world alongside him. And Jesus looks at you and he says, what do you have? What are you bringing with you? And dejected, you realize you don't have anything. Nothing. I don't have anything to bring with me. But then you remember, well, I have a little giftedness. I, I have a little gentleness. I have a little hospitality. Maybe I have a little leadership. I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. I'm an attorney. I'm in sales. I have, I have something like that. What little do you have to offer to Jesus? Hold that thing out in front of him. What is that thing? What is that giftedness? What's that vocational training? What's that experience? And hold it out and say, Jesus, I've got this. I've got this. And you know what Jesus says to you? Perfect. Perfect. That's something that I can work with. Now watch this. You can open your eyes. I think that we'll be amazed at what God will do with our willingness to recognize our purpose of knowing Jesus and making him known, along with our willingness to say yes with whatever we have to bring, our giftedness, our talents, our experience, whatever we have to bring to Jesus, as long as we're willing to say yes, God will use those things to transform the world and will invite us to do that alongside him. And that's a story that we'll be telling for ages and ages to come. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thanks for tonight. Thanks for these friends and just the unique passions and skills and giftedness that are in this room. Giftedness and passions that are capable of changing the world, transforming the world for the kingdom alongside you. And God, we are so blessed that you have chosen us to do that, invited us to do that with you. But we also confess we've chased our purpose and meaning in other places. And for a lot of us, 
It's been in work. It's been in finding something to fill that purpose void. So we confess that. But God, we know you're faithful. And if we're just willing to say, I've got this, will you use it? You say, perfect, I'd love to. So thank you for your grace. God, I pray for these friends that they would use their talents and giftedness and passions to serve your church and serve your kingdom wherever they find themselves. In your name, we'll say amen.